Good afternoon. It's good to see you all. Um, We're going to be continuing our study of John's gospel. We're going to be picking up uh, at the last little bit of John chapter 6 and then uh, looking at the first 31 verses of John 7. So if you would go ahead and grab your Bibles. Uh, It's also in your worship guides. We've been in this study for a while, um, and uh, it's, it's always a, a joy to, to dig into this text, to really see what's going on here, to, to pay attention to what Jesus is saying. And we're going to be getting into a number of uh, red-letter words tonight, and so it's a, it's a privilege to be with you during this time. So let's turn our attention now to God's Word. 1 John chapter 6, beginning with verse 66. And let us listen carefully, for this is God's word. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. And we have believed, and we have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Chapter 7, verse 1. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works that you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. Then, after saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet, For fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, 
He will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, You have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me? Because on the Sabbath... I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So, Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So, they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet, many of the people believed in him, and they said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your servant, John, who wrote it down for us. And we thank you for this church family as a place to come together under your word and listen for you to speak to us. And so we ask that by your spirit you would. Not only in the reading of your word, but but now as we seek to understand it and respond to it. Lord, help us to know and to believe that today is the day of salvation and that we can turn to you because of your grace and your goodness and believe. So help us, Lord. Your servants are listening. Amen. At the turn of the 20th century, if you were to pick up the Sunday New York Times, I don't know how many of you still take a paper, um, but if you, uh, if you were to open up the New York Times in the early 1900s, the Sunday Times, on page 10, you would find two columns, full page, of a Sunday school lesson for the week. Now, that would, that would seem pretty unheard of, uh, what we've come to, to expect from our modern culture and journalism, but 
In 1903, on Sunday, October the 25th, if you opened up the New York Times, you would have read a Sunday school lesson, a good Sunday school lesson, with reflection questions at the end. You would have read a Sunday school lesson on Psalm 32, a Psalm of David, where he is delighting in the goodness and graciousness of God and extending forgiveness to him. It's kind of one that we hold in tandem with Psalm 51, a a psalm of confession. And in that New York Times, uh, you would have read this prayer. I am all sin and misery. Everything is wrong. But come, oh my Father, come and take me as I am. Here, from this point, show me what to do and where to go and make me obey. Oh God, change me, create me anew. I throw myself into thy hands. If I am left to myself, I am undone. Now, no one likes to admit inability. No one likes to admit that they need to change, that they have need at all. No one likes to admit that. They didn't like it in 1903. They don't like it 112 years later today. We don't like to express those kinds of things. But David did. David did because he was given this God-given self-awareness of his own desperate need. It was usually a self-awareness wrought that came to him through brokenness and suffering. But he relished in it, knowing his own need and confessing it before the Lord. And as we dive into this chapter in John's gospel, we're about a third of the way through now, I want to invite you into a time of honest self-awareness to consider your needs. And as as a culture, we expend a great deal of energy on our material needs, the physical things that we need. We spend a lot of time and attention at gaining wealth and material things. And to quote the French Renaissance philosopher Montaigne, the lack of wealth is easily repaired, but the poverty of the soul is irreparable. Now, I don't agree that it's irreparable. I think through the course of our time together, we will see uh, our only hope for the poverty of the soul. But we need a stark reminder of what our deepest needs are because everything around us is telling us that our, our deepest needs are physical. And yet the poverty of the soul is reminding us that it's spiritual. And so today in our time together, I want us to enter into the scene of John 7 to kind of kick up, kick up the dust on the road from Galilee to Jerusalem. I want us to enter into that scene and I want us to really pay attention to what Jesus is saying, to hear what Jesus is saying. And then I want us to take a step back and see the big picture, not only in John's gospel, what's kind of progressing all the way through here, but, but the big picture of, of our own hearts and lives. 
So the first movement to, uh, to enter the scene. In chapter six, we saw a great crowd start to gather around Jesus. A great crowd came to hear him teach and they were fed by his own miraculous hand. And by the end of chapter six, only the disciples remained. Thousands of people had heard Jesus teach. They had eaten by his hand and they had walked away. So much so that Jesus turns to his disciples and he asks if they will be leaving also. Now, from the end of John chapter 6 to the first line of John chapter 7, six months go by. It was around springtime. Springtime when the feeding of the 5,000 had occurred and now it was late September, early October. It was autumn in Jerusalem. The the leaves were turning. Uh, It was sweater weather. They didn't need to wear the sweaters yet, but they wanted to. Um, And so the first service got the pumpkin spice latte jokes. So these are the ones for you. Um, But it's, it's, it's time for a feast, the Feast of Booths. And so this long spread of time had just gone by. And so what... What occurred there? Like, what, what happened? What, the, six months go by. Jesus does, his public ministry is three years. Like, wh- why would you leave such a big portion out? And really, a number of the uh, teachings of Jesus that, that even non-Christians are familiar with occurred during this time. He wasn't just taking a rest in Galilee. There was a lot happening there. And I think that there are two reasons why John skips ahead. The first one is this that in the other Gospels, which had already been written, in the other Gospels, that teaching had been well accounted for. That teaching of Jesus had been uh, written out for those who would come later to, to hear what Jesus had to say. So that had occurred. And the other reason is this. I think that John wants to tie a, a, a connection between what was happening with the feeding of the 5,000 and what has been called the great defection. These people had heard, they had seen, and they walked away. The great defection that had happened. He wants to move us on in the story to the great conflict. Because a conflict begins to occur with Jesus and the people. And whereas the other Gospels give a path of Jesus' teaching, John moves us along the path to the cross. We need to see this conflict growing. We need to see this conflict, this great divergence that's happening with the rulers and with the people. So John moves us forward to the Feast of Booths. And in this time, in these interactions that I want us to look at, Jesus really encounters and engages three types of people. The first one is this, those that misunderstood. He he interacts with people who misunderstand who he is and what he has come to do. He engages the people who are rejecting him. Those who outright reject what he is saying, what he is doing. And then thirdly, he interacts with those who believe. So the misunderstanding, the rejecting, and the believing. Believing. 
So let's look at these interactions and, and hear together what Jesus has to say. Look with me in verse one of chapter seven. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. And now the Feast of Booths was at hand. The Feast of Booths, sometimes called the Feast of Tabernacles. And and this is a very large feast. It was one of the most popular feasts to go to. And people would all converge in Jerusalem for this time. And the reason that it's called Booths or Tabernacles is because during this celebration, um, which uh, people of the Jewish tradition just recently celebrated, uh, is that they would set up tents, sometimes even sleep in tents, but they would have meals in tents because they were remembering, because as you might recall, all the feasts are about remembering, remembering what occurred. And in this feast, they are remembering the time in the wilderness, They are remembering how God sustained the people of Israel in the wilderness as they were nomads and they were uh, dwelling in tents from place to place to place as they picked up and moved and picked up and moved. And so they were celebrating that. It was a time of remembrance. One of the things that they were remembering was how God sustained them with bread from heaven, manna, which in chapter 6 John just highlighted Jesus saying, I am the bread of life. I am the the bread that comes down from heaven and sustains the people. You have to eat me to live. As he draws that parallel with the manna in the wilderness here in chapter 7 is the feast and the celebration remembering that time in the history of the people Israel. And so his brothers are heading that way. The families would caravan together along the road. They would sing songs. They would sing hymns together as they made their way, as this time of celebration, a time of singing songs about repentance, songs about God's covenant. And they would sing. And so they're getting ready to go, and his brothers say, this is your time. You've got a crowd. Come on, it's time to get ready to go, and Jesus is not going. And so they're confused, and they say to him in verse 3, Leave here, go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if they seek to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. They're saying, if if you're wanting to get this Jesus brand out there, if you want to get this name out there, you've got to be pounding the pavement. You've got to be out there, shaking hands, kissing babies. You know, you've got to be out there, like show yourself. Display, this is what you want, right? Like you want all these people. You want to be known openly. You want the world. So here, this is the biggest stage you're going to get. Now what they don't understand, and and something that we've seen highlighted throughout John's gospel, is that every time Jesus talks about the world, he talks about judgment. Not a platform for him to get some more people interested in him. Not where he's trying to just cajole people to please believe in me. I don't see him in the Gospels pandering, just, just saying, please, if you would just like, I know that you've got some questions, but please, please, please believe in me. I don't see that happening. He declares who he is and what he has come to do, and he declares judgment. And so that's what he says to them here in verse 6. My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. That's the world. You want to talk about the world? The world hates me. The world wants to kill me. 
Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. So you go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. For my time has not yet fully come. And it's important here that verse 5 for not even his brothers believed in him. For not even his brothers. The, the even there. Not even his brothers. That, that tells you how great this great defection was. Not even his brothers who saw him, who heard him, saw miracles, heard teaching. And they misunderstand who he is. This is a comfort to me. When I think about my own doubts and my own lack of faith, my own weak faith, my feeble faith. Because sometimes I'll think, God, if you just showed yourself more dominantly, if there was just writing in the sky, if, if, if someone just came to, to me with a word, if I just got enough signs, or if, maybe if I just read another good book, like if I just got another good book, if I got more information, then I would have the faith that was sturdy. And then I think of Jesus' brothers. They saw the miracles themselves. They heard the teaching themselves. For not even his brothers believed in him. And Jesus replies to all of this. He tells them that my time has not yet come. My time to go up to this feast, more specifically, has not yet come. And so he waits. They go up in the caravan, they go up with the family, and they make their way to Jerusalem. And after a time, at the right time, Jesus goes up privately. He goes up privately and he makes his way to Jerusalem. And there is further misunderstanding happening there. Look with me in verse 11. The Jews, the rulers, were looking for him at the feast and they were saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. So in this muttering, there were kind of two camps going on. One camp said he's a good man. And the other camp says, no, he's leading people astray. And yet for the fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. Now, a good man is not what Jesus is. He's not just a good man. He's not just a wise teacher a kind person that we should just all aspire to, to emulate. We're not just trying to be like Jesus in those ways, the kind teacher. But that's what some are saying. But others are rejecting. And so enter the rejecting. As they say, no, he is leading the people astray. And actually Jewish literature at that time begins to talk about Jesus as the deceiver of Israel. So the literature at that time, the history that's being written, they're saying this man from, from Galilee, the, the, this Nazarene, he made his way in and he was deceiving the people. And so they reject him. And Jesus, unsurprisingly, does not let this muttering go on for very long. He goes into the temple and he begins to separate, separate the sheep from the goats, the rejecters from the believers. And he does this by teaching. Look at verse 14. About the middle of the feast, he went up into the temple and began teaching. And the Jews therefore marveled, saying, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? 
Now, for those of you that are still trudging along through school, uh, this can be a little depressing. You know, Jesus, he's never studied. He's never had to study before. He just has all these things. And so they're wondering, this rabbi that's never studied, he didn't go through the proper route. He didn't go through rabbinical school in the ways that you're supposed to. How does he have all this information when he doesn't have this education? I mean, how many of you would go to a doctor who had a great reputation and zero education? Very few of you will move on. Uh, and, and so, no, of course we wouldn't. The education backs up the claims. The education backs up what's being said. And so they're saying, how, how, could, how does he say these things? How does he have this teaching? And so Jesus answers them. Verse 16. My teaching is not mine, but it is his who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. And what he's saying here is he wants his, his message, his teaching, to teach people about his identity, his origin. Where did he come from? Just like his message comes from the Father, he came from the Father. He was sent by the Father. And part of what testifies to that, the truthfulness of what he is saying, is the fact that he's not going after his own glory. He's not coming for his glory, he's coming for the glory of the Father. And so his message is the Father's message. His origin is from the Father. And so Jesus, as he often does, when he is uh, ready to not back down from the conflict, he says this in verse 19. Has not Moses given you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? And that crowd of rejectors, they, they respond and they say, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? Calm down, Jesus. That's crazy. You see, Jesus is teaching them about his connection to the Father and he's also calling them out that yes, they have the law, but they don't keep the law. And then he asks them, why are you, why are you seeking to kill me? He goes on, verse 21. I did one work. The one work that he is talking about is, and we looked at it a number of weeks ago, and that is the healing of the man at the pool of Bethesda. The paralytic man, when he healed him on the Sabbath, that, that was the powder keg that has now gone off. That, that, is, that is what has been traveling. That's, what, that's the spark that started the fire of conflict with Israel. And he says, I did one work and you marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. And if on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. He's saying to keep Moses' law, you circumcise on the Sabbath. That's keeping the law. And you mark that child with a sign of the covenant that that child is a covenant child, that the promises made to Israel extend to that child. And you do that on the Sabbath, and that's keeping the law. But I show up, and I heal a man's whole body. I don't just mark a part of the body. I heal the whole body. I mark the whole body as God's. And you want to kill me. And so he's highlighting their own hypocrisy here. And as he highlights it, and he's calling them out for their own sin, 
They get angry. How do we know they got angry? Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? So just a few minutes earlier, before Jesus doubles down with his teaching and is even more offensive by saying that these people do not know the law and that they are not obeying Moses, earlier they said, Jesus, calm down. You have a demon. You're crazy. Who is seeking to kill you? And then Jesus says, you're hypocrites and you don't understand the law of Moses. And then they respond with, isn't that the guy that we're trying to kill? Didn't we have a plan together to get rid of this guy? Before, you have a demon where no one's trying to kill you. And now, after this offensive teaching, we've got to do something about this guy. Wasn't there a plan to kill him? But then panic sets in. Because there was a plan to kill him. They're seeking to kill him. And yet here he is speaking openly and they say nothing to him. And here's where the real panic sets in. Can it be that the authorities really know that he is the Christ? Maybe the reason that they're not doing anything is because they know that he's the Messiah and they are afraid of him. So that yes, they want to kill him, but they're too afraid to do anything about it. So this confusion sets in And then the muttering comes back with another answer in 27. But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So what they're saying is there is this belief that when the Messiah came, no one would know where he came from. He would show up and Elijah would anoint him and he would become the Messiah. And they're saying, this is is Jesus of Nazareth. This is that carpenter. My mom has a chair that he made. Like this isn't some person that's just appearing out of nowhere. And so he responds to them. You know me and you know where I come from. Okay, you know, you know that I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You know that I'm from Nazareth. You know these things, but I have not come from my own accord. He who sent me is true and you do not know him. So not only do they not obey the law, and then they don't judge rightly, but they don't know God. That's the development of the teaching here. It's getting more and more intense, and more and more conflict arises. So, as this happens, as this conflict is building and building and building, We're going to close out our time by looking at how yet many, in verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. All this conflict, all these hard sayings, all these difficult things to hear, and yet many believed. If we take a step back here and we see what's what's kind of progressing in John's gospel. As we see the conflict arising, as we've seen the great defection and people that just walked away, and then we see this tension building in Jerusalem. We still see these people believing. Verse 31. And I think that there are two attributes of a believer that we can, that we can notice here in the passages that we've looked at tonight. And the two things are this. The first one is, is back in the end of 
chapter 6, when Jesus says to the 12, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. The first thing is that these believers, they believe and have come to know. They know this. Carl Jung, uh, the 20th century uh, psychologist and psychiatrist, uh, one of his famous lines is he was in an interview in the 50s on the BBC and he was asked if he believed in God and he said, no, I don't believe in God, I know him. A lot of controversy with a statement like that. But Peter is highlighting what that means. We, We have come to believe, we have heard these things, we have believed and we have come to know We've come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And in that, in that statement, Jesus' origin, where he came from, is being highlighted. You are the Holy One from the Father. So, believing and knowing. The second thing is this. In verse 17 of chapter 7. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. So in this, we see that Jesus is saying that those who see him rightly, to go back to Peter's confession, to see him rightly is those who believe and know. And in this passage, 17, he is saying that those who will the will of God see him rightly and know who he is. So how do we get that? How do we get those two things? How how do we get that believing and knowing? And how do we get that kind of will? Well, first, um, the believing and knowing. In a parallel to Peter's confession that we see in what's called the synoptic gospels, in Matthew in particular, chapter 16, verse 16 Jesus has been asking Peter what the crowds are saying about him. What do they say my identity is? And Peter tells him. And then Jesus goes further and says, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with these words. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus responded to him, and said, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood have not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So what's being said there? How, how do we come to that confession, that knowing and believing? How do we get to that place? It must be revealed to us by God. Flesh and blood did not tell him these things. Now, he probably heard these things. They had conversations Maybe he read a good book by Max Lucado. I, I don't know, but, but at some point he probably heard these things, but what needed to happen in his heart, in the poverty of his soul, he needed God to reveal to him who Jesus is. And we need that too. The second thing is this. How do we get that will? How do we will what God wills? Because Jesus says, The person who wills what God wills sees Jesus rightly. So how do we get that? And in Hebrews, the author of Hebrews in chapter 13, as he's closing out and he's praying for his readers, he says this. We often use this as a benediction here at Redeemer. 
Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, we must be equipped. We read it in Philippians in our confession tonight. We, we have to be changed. We have to be transformed. We read it in Ezekiel 36. We, we, need, we need a new spirit. We need a new heart. We need him to change us and to change our will that we would will what he wills. We must be transformed. Now this is both an instantaneous action and a process, right? This is instantaneous that God, in giving us new life in Jesus, in, in, in the Holy Spirit, connecting us to the person of Jesus Christ, in an instant, we, we are given this faith. We are, give, we, are, we are drawn near to him. We are granted faith to trust and believe and for our will to be conformed. It is instantaneous and it is a process for our entire life that our will would be transformed throughout our lives to desire what God desires, to want what he wants. Notice, just side point, notice that Jesus didn't say, he who does God's will. Because that, that's one bar we're not meeting. But he says, he who wills God's will. This work, this internal work of God transforming our will and our heart and our minds, that we would want what he wants. To see Jesus rightly, we don't simply just need enough information, that we would reason our way or simply uh, passion our way through our affections. We have to be changed. And to quote again from the prayer in the New York Times, if we are left to ourselves, we are undone. Left alone, we are misunderstanding. Left alone, we are rejecting. But when we are drawn by the Father, when we are granted the gift of faith, we can believe and come to know that Jesus is the Holy One from God. When we experience that grace, Think, hold these things in your mind. The great poverty of the soul, the poverty, the pennilessness of the soul, and the Father is rich in mercy, that he is wealthy in grace, and he lavishes his wealth of grace into the poverty of our souls that which we could never work to obtain. We could never work intellectually. We could never work morally. We could never work spiritually to get ourselves out of the poverty of the soul. And he is wealthy and rich in grace and mercy. And he lavishes it upon his sons and daughters. Left to ourselves, we are undone. But when he comes to us and he breathes this new life into us by the power of his spirit, we join in Peter's confession that actually comes later in the New Testament from 
the book of Acts, when he declares, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. We join with him in saying, there is no other name, there is no other way, And we declare, hallelujah, all I have is Christ. And he is sufficient. And he is efficient for the poverty of my soul. Let's go to him in prayer. Oh God, we are all sin and misery. Everything is wrong. But come, O oh, our Father, come and take us as we are. Here from this point, show us what to do and where to go and make us obey. O oh, God, change us. Create us anew. We throw ourselves into thy hands. For if we are left to ourselves, We are undone. Amen.